Awesome. Thank you. Hey, good morning, everyone. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, I come this morning filled with gratitude and joy that I get to be with you. Uh, It's a real pleasure whenever we get to come and, uh, Bruce, I don't know what's with this thing, but it's being funky. Just so you know, it just closed out of whatever. Yeah, Um, it's a real pleasure whenever we get to come and share with a partnership church, and that's what you guys are. You are one of our team's partnership communities, and so it's a real pleasure to be able to come and meet all of you. Ben and Chelsea, who call this community home, are a couple of our teammates and colleagues, our neighbors, our kids all play together, and so uh, it's just really, really fun to be able to finally be here and meet all of you. We've heard a lot about this town and this community through Ben and Chelsea. All good stuff, don't worry, uh, with the exception of Pastor Bruce, but he's nicer than they said, so that's all been good too. So it's a real joy just to be with you. Thank you for welcoming me and giving me the opportunity to come and share with you a little bit about uh, me, my family, our work, the passion that the Lord's given us uh, for the work that we are up to. This morning, I want to acknowledge as we get going, before we open God's Word, that in some ways, I think this is a very strange time for me as someone who lives halfway across the world to come to you in Dubois, Pennsylvania, and tell you about what's going on way, way, way over there. For us, whenever we come back to the States, it's always a little surreal and strange, but man, this past like year and a half, hasn't it just been chaotic and bizarre? I mean, it is a weird season. I don't think anyone could have predicted a year and a half ago that this is where we would be, but here we are. And what I find within myself is there's a temptation when life feels chaotic and out of control, there's a temptation to be very inward focused and to kind of circle the wagons and get really concerned with just trying to protect me and my family and our dreams and just advance and continue on. And it's easy to kind of get tunnel visioned and forget about the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. And so I want to acknowledge that for some of you this morning, that might be the space you're in. And what I want to invite you into is to take a step back and try to get a more global picture of what's going on. Because the work Jesus started 2,000 years ago continues today and God's kingdom is advancing. And there is good news. Despite the chaos and the uncertainty and all of the hardship and destruction we see around us, God's kingdom is at work. People's lives are being redeemed. Communities are being restored. God's kingdom is coming. And so I pray this morning for all of us, we would experience a kind of recalibration, that we would be drawn back into the bigger picture of what God's up to, and that we would be enraptured into it. I want to start by uh, introducing you to my family real quick. Um, The amazingly handsome man you see there is me. Next to me is my beautiful, beautiful wife, Lashana. I really wish she could be here with us this morning. She is at home in Lincoln, Nebraska with our two girls. The girl sitting on my lap is our five-year-old daughter, River. And then sitting on my wife's lap is Alora. And this picture is a good encapsulation of the personalities within our family. Our daughters are awesome. Uh, Wish they could be here for you to meet them as well. 
I mentioned that Lincoln, Nebraska is kind of home. That's where we've been for the last nine months, but typically we are in West Africa. So we are international workers with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and typically West Africa is where we are living and where we are working. And for any of you who don't know, the work we do there is uh, we help operate a center where we offer a variety of classes, primarily English, but a lot of other skills as well. And we use that as a platform to draw in lots and lots of people. We have just around 300 people, students, who come to our center. They're all university and post-university age. They come to learn different things, whether it's English or something else, and we use that as an opportunity to begin building relationship with these people. And then we begin ministering and speaking truth, speaking the gospel to these people once we've built those relationships. Where we live and serve is a context where we are working with a few different people groups, all of which make up about 85% of our country's population, and all of those people groups are 99% Muslim and unreached. By unreached, what I mean is that there is very little to no gospel access. If you were to ask your average Muslim where we live and work, who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What does it mean that he died on the cross? They would not be able to answer those questions. They don't know what the gospel is, and they don't have access to learn. And so us and our team, we are burdened to be there and to try to change that, to try to make gospel saturation all over the country so that people are equipped to make a choice as to whether or not they want to give allegiance to King Jesus. So we are privileged to be a part of that work, and and that encapsulates kind of the unfinished work that I mentioned earlier and the recalibration that I want to draw us back to. The fact that 2,000 years after Jesus, there is still a country where 85% of the population don't even know who Jesus is and what he accomplished is part of the work that I hope we can get drawn into this morning. So why do we do this? Why would my wife and I decide to uproot our family and move halfway across the world? What would draw us there? Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to John 21. This morning we're going to be in John 21 as we explore that question, and uh, we're going to be looking at a story that for me has been very grounding over the last few years. As we've done the work that we feel God has called us to, this is a story that I come back to time and time again that has been foundational for me. John 21, we'll start reading in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Okay, 
So this story takes place after Jesus' resurrection. In fact, just prior to this, what we see taking place is some of the disciples are out on the sea. They're fishing. They fished all night long. They haven't caught a thing. They're just about to tow the boat back onto shore when they see someone on the beach. And whoever's on the beach calls out, hey, why don't you try casting the nets on the right side of the boat? And so they do, and they get this huge haul of fish, and the nets are tearing, and they recognize, man, that's Jesus. So they rush to shore. They find Jesus there with a little fire. They cook up. They have this breakfast. And then it's immediately after the breakfast that we get this weird little interaction between Jesus and Peter. And this is a weird interaction. I think sometimes we get so inundated with Scripture, we can hear these stories so many times that we just miss out on how bizarre some of these interactions are. So I want you to imagine this. Imagine that your best friend calls you one day, invites you over for breakfast. You go over, you eat, you're leaning back in a chair, you're sipping some coffee or tea, and your best friend looks at you and says, hey, do you love me? And you're like, yeah, I love you. And they go, okay, cool, shepherd my sheep. You're like, what? And they say, do you love me? And you go, yeah. They say, okay, tend my flock. You're like, what is happening? And they say, hey, do you love me? And at this point, you're like Googling psychiatric ward in Dubois underneath the table. They say, would you tend my lambs? And then you have to imagine that your best friend goes on to tell you how you're going to die. Has anyone had that conversation before? This is bizarre, right? What is going on? Why is Jesus talking about feeding sheep and tending lambs? Why does he ask this question three times over? Why is he telling Peter what's going to happen to him? This is a bizarre little interaction. But as I said earlier, for me, this story has been so grounding. And this morning, I want to unpack a little bit of why that is. Let's start by making a few observations. First observation I want to make is what Jesus is doing here is he's calling Peter into an ongoing, important work. These are the last moments that the Apostle John records for us in his gospel. There's one little extra story that dovetails off of this, and then that's it. He closes out his gospel. These are the last things that the Apostle wants whoever reads his gospel to walk away with. And what he's doing here is John is casting vision for what Peter and the disciples' lives are going to look like once Jesus ascends, once he leaves earth and returns to the Father. And this is decidedly different than how Matthew, Mark, and Luke end out their gospels. Matthew, for example, ends with what we commonly call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a different audience. It's a different setting. It's a different tone, to be sure, than what John ends on. But I would argue that the central idea, the big picture concept is actually very similar. In both cases, we have Jesus calling the disciples up in order to go out. Jesus is inviting Peter into an important work. Peter's role as a witness of the Messiah was not a passive one. He was not meant to simply be a receptacle of history 
to retell what Jesus did. He was being trained and equipped to continue the work that Jesus started. So part of what's happening here is Jesus is calling Peter into an important work. Second observation, the work that Peter is being called into begins with Peter's own unfinished inward work. I asked the question earlier, why does Jesus ask Peter three times over, do you love me? And in order to understand what's going on here, we need to think a few chapters back to chapter 18. In chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the high priest Caiaphas' house where he's going to stand trial, be accused of, and eventually sentenced to blasphemy. And while that whole trial is unfolding, there's a parallel story taking place with Peter within the courtyard of Caiaphas' house. Peter follows along as Jesus is arrested from a distance. He enters into the courtyard, and there's a servant girl there who looks at him and says, Hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter denies it. He says, No, 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 I don't know him. A little while later, someone else says, Hey, aren't you one of the disciples? Didn't you follow him? And again, Peter denies it. Lastly, someone says, Hey, weren't you in the garden when we arrested him? And of course, for a third time, Peter denies it. Three times over in three consecutive moments, Peter denies friendship, association, discipleship with the man he had just previously declared as his king, that he would never deny, that he would never abandon, that he would always follow even unto death. Three times over, Peter allows his confusion and his fear and his uncertainty and his doubt to be the primary driving factors in his decision-making. And he casts aside what had been three years of ministry and friendship and discipleship because of his fear and his confusion. And Peter's failure in chapter 18 is a contrast to Jesus' own experience in the garden just prior to his arrest. When Jesus is in the garden, he knows what's coming Three times over, he commits himself to the Father's will. He says, not my will, but yours be done. I will follow you. And immediately after that, we have Peter failing three times over to do just that very thing. Instead of entrusting himself to the Father, he takes it upon himself. He operates out of fear, confusion, doubt, worry, and anxiety. And so what's happening here just a few chapters later is Jesus is calling on Peter to remember that moment where he denied him three times over, and instead he gives him the opportunity to affirm what he had previously denied. He gives Peter an opportunity to reflect on and meditate on his previous denial and instead choose to affirm that friendship, that companionship, that discipleship. Jesus is meeting Peter in a place of pain and brokenness and failure in order to redeem that as he is simultaneously calling Peter to go out and continue the work that Jesus began. Jesus is inviting Peter to experience inward reconciliation and restoration in light of his own deep failure and brokenness. Third observation, lastly, the work Jesus is calling Peter into is Jesus' own unfinished work. I asked the question earlier, why is Jesus talking about sheep and lambs? Why is he talking about feeding and caring for a flock? And in order to understand what's going on here, again, we need to think back earlier in the Gospel of John. 
back in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, uh, we don't have time to look at that whole passage, but if you want to get a picture for who Jesus saw himself as being and what work he called himself, or felt himself called into, read that passage. John 10, 1 through 18 is crucial for understanding who exactly Jesus was and what he saw himself accomplishing. I'll give you a, a shortened version of it right here. This is Jesus speaking. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Jesus is establishing himself as the shepherd of God's flock. And this is a loaded messianic title going way back into the Old Testament. There are multiple passages we could look at for this, but I'll just mention one for the sake of time. Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, the prophet Ezekiel gives a powerful rebuke of the leaders of Israel. He says to the Pharisees and the scribes, those in authority, that God had appointed and called them to shepherd God's people, God's flock. And he says, instead of caring for these sheep, these leaders have instead slaughtered the sheep, gorged themselves on the sheep's fat, stripped off their wool for their own clothing, and starved the weak and the sick. And the prophet goes on to say, because of this, God is rejecting you as his shepherds, and instead God himself is going to shepherd his flock. And he says one day God is going to send a Messiah. God is going to send a shepherd who will shepherd God's people forever and ever and ever. So what's going on in John 21? Well, imagine that you are Peter. You're intimately familiar with this prophecy from 500 years before. You've heard Jesus echo the same condemnations that Ezekiel himself said. You've heard Jesus emphatically declare, I am that promised good shepherd. And now Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, I want you to shepherd my sheep. I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my flock. Church, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's saying, I'm not done shepherding, but Peter, you are going to be the means by which my sheep experience my shepherding. Can you imagine the simultaneous weight of responsibility and privilege Peter must have felt in this moment as Jesus is calling on him to continue the work that Jesus himself started, the work that God had promised? Peter is now going to continue that along with the other disciples. And this is simply an extension of what we looked at earlier in the Great Commission, right? Because in John 10, as Jesus is declaring himself clearly and unanimously the shepherd of God's sheep, he also says, I have sheep not of in this fold, and I have to go to them and call them in. And that's the work that Jesus is setting before Peter. This is why Jesus goes on to tell Peter exactly how he's going to die. John 21, 18 through 19, Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished. When you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will gird you, bring you where you do not wish to go. Then John tells us this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. 
Jesus lays out for Peter a clear contrast between what his life used to look like and what his life is going to look like. And one can't help but note the similarity between the description given of how Peter's life is going to end and how Jesus' own life ended in his crucifixion. What Jesus is doing here is he is inviting Peter to intimately identify with Jesus' own life and ministry, and yes, even his death. He's telling Peter, you are going to continue what I started. Your life, in many ways, is going to mirror my own. So what's happening in this strange little story from John 21? Well, first of all, Jesus is calling Peter into an important work. Secondly, he's inviting Peter to experience inward reconciliation and restoration coming out of his own brokenness. And thirdly, lastly, he's inviting Peter to identify with Jesus' own life, ministry, and death. Jesus is calling Peter to an unfinished work of crucial importance that begins with his own inward restoration. So what does all of that mean for us? What does that have to do with what uh, my wife and I feel called into? What people like Ben and Chelsea feel called into? What does Peter's experience 2,000 years ago have to do with us this morning? Well, this story sets up, I believe, a paradigm that you and I, those of us who have given allegiance to King Jesus and said we want to be a part of your kingdom, still operate out of today. Namely, God calls us to important work. Peter's called to the unfinished work of shepherding Jesus' flock, and that work is unfinished. Peter and the other disciples, they go on to work to bust the doors of the early church wide open that anyone may enter in. And they train up another generation of disciples who continue that work, who expand the bounds of the church. And then they raise up another generation, and on and on and on, the work has proceeded, and we sit here 2,000 years later, and the work is still not finished. It now falls to us to participate in the work Jesus started 2,000 years ago of calling lost sheep back into the flock, of inviting them to hear the shepherd's voice. Many of those who aren't in the fold of God's flock don't even know that there's a fold to belong to. They don't even know that there's a shepherd calling their voice. They don't know there's a place to go to be home. And so Jesus' voice continues to echo today, 2,000 years later, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my flock. Care for my lambs. And we have a decision to make just as Peter did. Are we going to pick up that mantle and continue forward? When you and I decided to follow King Jesus, more happened than simply our sins were forgiven. We were called to participate in a community that is working to the restoration of all that is broken and lost and destructive. That that which has been twisted would be mended. That God's original purpose for humanity to live in flourishing in peace alongside him, that would actually be accomplished. You and I are called to participate in that work. Before we made it to West Africa, we spent almost a year in language school in France. 
And that time was meant to be formative. It was meant to train us and equip us for something. It was not meant simply to be a really great time in the most beautiful place we've ever lived, which it was. It was also meant to be formative so that we would be equipped, so that we would be changed. Our brains would be able to process information differently. Our mouths would be able to move in different ways. We'd be able to have new skill sets that would change the way we look at things and our ability to interact with people. In church, your following Jesus is similar. It is meant to be formative. It should change the way you interact with the world around you. We are called to an important work. This is crucial today. There are still 4,000 distinct people groups around the world consisting of 3.4 billion people who don't even have access to the gospel. They don't know there's a shepherd calling their name. They don't know there's a place to call home. So who's going to go? Who's going to tell them? Who is going to feed those sheep? Secondly, just like with Peter, our participation in this unfinished work begins with our own unfinished work. Church, you are both an unfinished work and you are God's means by which he wants to work towards the completion of his unfinished work. And those two works are intrinsically tied. This is a pattern we see all throughout Scripture. The people that God calls forth to advance his purposes are forced to deal with their own junk. (laughs) We see this all throughout Scripture. I'll mention just one example. Go home today. I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. Go home today and read the account of Moses encountering God in the burning bush. And what I want you to take note of is how many times Moses tries to get out of that calling. Five times over, Moses tries to avoid the very clear and obvious call that God has placed on him. And it comes out of his own sense of failure and brokenness. Forty years prior to that moment, he tried to work to the freedom of his people, and it resulted in him being in exile. And after 40 years of living with that, when God comes to him and says, no, I actually want you to do that very thing you tried to do before, Moses says, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. Five times over, he tries to get out of it. This is a pattern, like I said, we see over and over and over again. Your participation in the unfinished work God wants to accomplish through you requires you looking inward and dealing with your own junk, your own failure, your own brokenness. God wants to redeem what is broken inside you as he simultaneously invites you to participate in offering that redemption to the brokenness around you. Those two works go hand in hand and are inseparable. Thirdly and lastly, we're called into Jesus' own unfinished work. Peter's post-breakfast encounter with Jesus was an invitation to intimately identify with Jesus' life, ministry, and death. Just as Jesus walked and moved and worked towards the reconciliation of the people around him with God the Father, so would Peter. Just as Jesus performed miracles and gave supernatural signs, so would Peter. Just as Jesus offered life and truth to the people around him walking in darkness, so would Peter. Peter's life becomes a mirror of Jesus' own. And you and I, we are called to do that same thing. That when people see us, whether individually or gathered corporately, they would see a picture of Jesus' own life, 
ministry and death, that the values that he advocated for and lived out would be reflected in us ourselves. And just like with Peter, there is a cost to be considered with this. Jesus says in no uncertain terms, if you follow in my footsteps, there will be pain and persecution. And the same is true for you and I. If we are serious about following Jesus, there is a cost to be paid. There's a cost to be considered. We are signing up to lay down our lives for a kingdom not of this world. There's a cost, but it's worth it. I want to tell you about a friend of mine. We'll call him B. Where we work in uh, West Africa, I mentioned earlier, we have a center that we invite people into, and then we teach them, and we offer classes And that's really uh, the starting point for us to begin to build relationship with young Muslim men and women in order to speak truth to them. B came to our center a number of years ago, and in many ways, he was just like a lot of the other people we see come. University-aged guy, young Muslim man, very serious about his faith. But he came to our center because he was interested in learning English. What was unique about B is on his first day at the center, he went into our director's office, sat down across from him and said, hey, listen, I know you're a Christian, I'm a Muslim, and I want you to know I don't ever want to hear anything about Jesus. I'm only here to learn English. Our director was a little taken aback. That's not the typical attitude we hear. But he said, okay, well, I'm glad you're here. You're still welcome to be here. Why don't you go off to class? Fast forward a few weeks. B's been in class. He's been hanging around the center a little bit, and he starts lingering after class. He starts showing up a little bit earlier so he can be in our cafe and hang out with his classmates. A few months down the line, B has become a regular at our center. Whether he has class or not, he's there. And this is pretty typical. This is what we find. People come because they want to learn English or gain some other skill, and they end up hanging around and interacting with us because they find a source of community and family. And over the next few years, B was just a regular at our center. He was always around, whether he had class or not. We began to build really good, meaningful relationships with him. He would take new members on tours of our center and tell them things like, this place is like nowhere you've ever been. These people will love you. They'll care for you. They're always here for you. He would go into our director's office to ask for advice, say things like, man, this is what's going on in my life. I don't know how to move forward. Help me out with this. So we were praying intensely for B because we were seeing this shift take place. That hard edge that he demonstrated on his first day of class was starting to soften. We felt like, man, God's spirit is doing something powerful in B's life. There's a lost sheep who's starting to hear his name be whispered by the good shepherd. B made his way up into our highest level of English that we offer. And before the semester came to a close, he went into our director's office again, this time with sadness on his face instead of anger. And he sat down and he said, hey, I need to tell you, I'm not going to be able to finish out the class. Our director said, why? What's up? And and he said, well, my father's dream for me was always that I would become an imam, which is a religious leader in Islam. And I started that training a number of years ago. I never finished it. But he just told me yesterday that tomorrow I'm getting on an airplane, I'm going to Morocco, and I'm becoming an imam. So I have to say goodbye. Our director prayed with him, blessed him, said goodbye, and he left. And for the next couple of years, 
We never heard anything from B. No idea where he's at. No idea what he's going through. No idea what's happening with him. We would still think of him pretty often because he was such a staple in our community. We'd still pray for him and hope that God would do something miraculous and crazy in his life, but we had no idea where he was at and what was going on. Until about a year and a half ago, some of our teammates were chatting with colleagues in Paris, France. And our colleagues in Paris said, hey, we have a mutual friend. The teammates said, what? Who, who's our mutual friend? And they said, oh, it's B. I said, how do you know B? And our colleagues in Paris said, well, B uh, came to us. He, he told us that he had left Morocco and he made his way up to Paris. He connected with us as other CMA international workers. He told us all about the work you guys do at the center. He told us about how he had met you guys and you had told him about Jesus. You had told him about God's love for him. He told us before he ever even left to go to Morocco, he had secretly begun attending church. And then just a little bit ago, our colleagues in France got to baptize B, and he became a believer. Yeah, amen. And the coolest part for me is that if you ask our colleagues in Paris to describe B to you, they will say he always has a smile on his face, he's eager to talk to anyone who will listen about Jesus, and he's filled with joy. What a contrast to the young, angry Muslim man who walked through our doors a number of years ago. We praise God for the work he's done in B's life and the privilege we had of playing just a small part in God's transformation of him. But if we had time this morning, I could tell you about dozens of members we have at our center just like B. Young, adamant Muslim men and women who are starting to grasp the love of Jesus and haven't yet, yet. Who's going to continue that work? Who's going to tell them? Who's going to continue to speak to them and witness to them and remind them that there is a good shepherd who would love to embrace them and care for them for all of eternity if they would but listen to his voice? And that's just in our context alone. (laughs) In this small little country in West Africa, that says nothing for the 3.4 billion people globally who don't have access to the good news of Jesus. And so this morning... God's voice continues to call out, Church, do you love me? Shepherd my sheep, tend my flock, feed my lambs. This is the sort of recalibration that I think we need, that we would be called back into the purpose which Jesus started 2,000 years ago and, and which falls on us this morning, that we would participate in the unfinished work that God would have for us. In the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus casts vision for what the disciples' work is going to look like, and he tells them that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. In church, there is work in all of these spheres. There is unfinished work in this city, in this county, in this state, in this nation, and of course around the world. You have neighbors, you have co-workers, you have people in your life with unfinished stories, who Jesus is calling forth, inviting into the flock, and he has appointed you to be one means by which that shepherding takes place. You are not responsible, church, for everything that's going on in the world, but you are responsible for a part of it. And Jesus is inviting you into a closer, 
imitation of his own life and ministry, that you would participate in his shepherding of those who don't yet know him. As we close out our time this morning, um, there are just a couple of things I want to invite you to prayerfully consider as we leave this space. The first is whose unfinished story is God calling me to enter into? And what unfinished story is God calling us collectively to enter into? I encourage you to spend some serious time in reflection and meditation around this. Whose unfinished story am I called to participate in? Whose unfinished story are we as a body, one community called to participate in? And next, and just as importantly, what would need to happen for me, for us, to enter into that? It's one thing to identify who you feel called to. It's another thing to identify what are the obstacles and barriers. And so again, I would invite you, spend some time in reflection, ask you, man, what what gets between me, what gets between us and what we feel called to? You might say, man, I feel really called to reach out to my neighbors. I, I know they don't know the love of Jesus, but... Ah, man, one of the obstacles is I just don't know them very well. So I invite you, man, spend some time in reflection. Okay, what's really behind that? Why, why don't I know them very well? And maybe as you peel back that layer, you find, well, I don't really have time to get to know them. Well, what's behind that? Peel that back. Maybe you find, yeah, well, I'm really committed. I just don't have much margin. Well, why are you so overextended? And as you continue to peel back and ask yourself the whys, Behind those obstacles, you will find yourself with one core issue. And whatever that core issue is, if it is keeping you from going to what God has called you to, it's a form of idolatry. It constitutes at least a part of the unfinished work God wants to do in you so that you can more fully press into and participate in his unfinished work around you. What's keeping you from what God has called you to? Maybe you say, man, I would love to tell people about Jesus, but you know what? I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't know how to tell them about the love of Jesus. And maybe as you peel back those layers, what you end up with is, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm afraid of being judged and looking stupid. Okay, I relate to that. Come work in a different culture and context. You'll feel like an idiot all the time. It's great, super sanctifying, but I get that. What you and I are called to is to press into that and pass that so that we can grow more into the freedom that Jesus died so that we might have. What gets between you and the work God has called you to participate in? I invite you to spend some time in reflection around that question. This theme of unfinished work is apparent all throughout Scripture. This book begins with a picture of humanity being placed in a beautiful garden and then being given the command to expand the boundaries of that garden so that all of creation might experience flourishing and life and peace as humanity partners with God in that purpose. Everything goes awry, (laughs) destruction enters the world, and then this book ends on that exact same note where flourishing does come to all of creation. In church, you and I are right in the middle of that epic, and you and I are called to participate in the restoration of everything that's been lost so that creation can experience what it was intended to have if you and I will respond to the voice of the Lord that continues to call out, do you love me? Shepherd my sheep, tend my lambs. 
you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for the uh, incredible privilege it is to gather together, to remember, to reflect on, to meditate on your words and your actions. Thank you that you give us a purpose so much greater than simply being reunited with you. As glorious and amazing as that is, you call us not only into that, but further and beyond to be a part of what you're doing around the world of bringing hope and joy and peace and love and restoration to things that are broken and messy and awry. Thank you that you see fit to use simple, broken, messy vessels like us to be uh, an expression of your love for your world. Thank you that you are patient with us as we slowly try to figure out what it is you've called us to and what it looks like to participate. This morning, I pray that you would burden the people of Dubois Alliance here with a clear sense of what you would have for them and what it would take for them to follow you. I pray that they would be infilled with passion and purpose. I don't know what that's going to look like for those here. Uh, Maybe some people are going to feel called to be more intentional in their workspace. Maybe people are going to feel called to partner more intentionally with what you're doing around the world. Maybe somebody here is feeling called to actually go and begin work with one of those 4,000 people groups that have yet to hear your good name, Jesus. But whatever that is, for those who, who are here, who are listening, who are considering and reflecting, I pray that your spirit would move clearly and powerfully. Thank you, Lord, for your love and grace and your presence with us. I pray a blessing over this body and this community, and I pray that they would experience new depths of your grace and love and the action you would call them to. And it's in your good and glorious name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for this morning. Um, I'm going to be just right outside at one of the tables out there. If you want to come and say hi, I'd love to meet you. I brought prayer cards so that you can uh, see my family and uh, get connected with us. Thanks so much for having me. Blessings.